When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's the podcast. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Today with me, I've got writer-director Mark Blackman. Hello, Mark. Hi, how's it going? It's going very well, going very well. Now, uh, you're, we're talking to you now just as you're about to go away, so I'm guessing it's panic stations where you are right now. Yeah, a little bit. It's uh, sort of the day job side of things, sort of a lot of corporate uh, directing. Uh, it's a big sort of overseas gig, so a lot of a lot of pre-production meetings and kit testing at the moment, which is is fun. But, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm coming or going at the moment. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad you managed to catch you. Um, do you want to give um, the listener a, a, a little sort of pricey as to uh, as to the kind of stuff you're, you're involved in doing from a writing directing point of view? Because, I, I mean, look at your website, you've got a number of shorts and lists of awards and stuff and you've got features in your feature in development i guess absolutely yeah i mean i i sort of um uh, doing sort of short films initially sort of from very young just you know pure passion for sort of filmmaking sort of bit me early on so sort of steaming through uh, all the terrible little things you make when you're sort of 12 or 13 with friends and sort of blank firing guns and whatnot and then um you know, I did the whole uni thing, had a had a, a blast socially, but was, you know, basically doing what I was doing anyway there. Came out, kind of became a promo producer for a couple of years, doing sort of promos for a lot of TV channels whilst still doing the filmmaking thing, and then went out as a freelance director. But um, in terms of sort of the stuff that we we've I've always sort of been making, they're sort of very... Uh, dark dramas, I guess, would be the phrase. I mean, the, the leaning's been more towards thrillers, but obviously budgets notwithstanding, um, or budgets not, not being there at all. Drama... Dash Thriller was sort of the the main thing we've sort of focused on over the years, and then um, that sort of bled into everything else we've done. Sort of, you know, be it music video or short film, they've always had sort of a very heavy, um, dark leaning. Just just for my own education, what is when is a dark drama not a thriller, and when is a thriller not a dark drama? I think for what we tried to do with a short film, for example, um, that we did a couple of years ago called Facial, which was a friend of mine referred to as a relationship thriller, yeah. was how you take the drama genre, which um, the plot of this one is effectively a, a, a guy finds a pornographic video of his girlfriend um, online and it's sort of about the fallout of their relationship, um, you know, after sort of the initial argument that sort of kicks off because of it, which as a drama is quite sort of clean cut and ABC, it deals with male jealousy. But what we tried to do was sort of inject it with sort of thriller elements in terms of the genre 
the structure and sort of how the how the story sort of unfolds. So we played a lot with sort of time and sort of the score was quite unsettling. Really, really good score by Rich Keyworth. Um, and sort of the approach to filming of it, it sort of had sort of a slightly neo-noiry sort of uh, feel whilst also still having that sort of kitchen sink realism thing that sort of gets associated with drama. So it's basically sort of fusing the elements of genres together. So it wasn't just a, a clear-cut, miserable drama. We tried to sort of do something that hopefully had, you know, audiences, uh, you know, chewing their fingernails a little bit because they kept on expecting like an outburst of violence, which when it did eventually come, wasn't in the way that they would they would think. So it's really sort of playing with um, subverting expectations by sort of fusing the two genres together. Yeah, I mean, I mean my, my reason for asking is just of late, I was, uh, I was sort of having a kind of polite argument about what's the difference between Saw and Seven, you know, one, one being classed as a horror film and one classed as a dark thriller. And um, the person put me in my place when they told me that um, ho- horror has a more voyeuristic element than than thrillers ever do. Mm. And then once once I once I heard that, it was kind of like it was like an invented fire because I can now see <laughs> you can see it you can see it in all films you see now as opposed to. I was sort of, you know, I kept thinking, this is just snobbery, this, because Brad Pitt's in one and he's not in the other. I, I think that's it. It's, it's sort of the glee that you take from watching something. I think, um, you know, it's like good science fiction is always drama that happens to have a science element in it, sort of, you know, Blade Runner being about what it is to be human. The Exorcist as a horror is what is faith. It just happens to be, you know, told through the, you know, through the mechanics of, of satanic possession. You know, it's always kind of focused on the 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 relationships and the drama that comes out of them rather than the, like you say, something like Saw, which is the glee of watching, you know, how are they going to get out of this situation? Mm. How are they going to, what do they have to do to get out of this situation? But, but it does, it does kind of trick you, doesn't it? Cause it has that kind of, it does have a noir feel to it as much as, you know, obviously the franchise went on, just became about bear traps, snapping people's heads off. But the first one, certainly. I, I think it's great. I mean, it's, it's got, it's one of those sort of things I always think is the, with short films there's always that awkward element of you know in in an ideal world they're sort of 10 to 20 minutes long anything longer is a bit of a you know a danger for festivals but the thing with something like Saw for me is it's like a perfect 40 minute film you know there's enough in there that you can sort of stretch it out beyond something sort of at 20 minutes but um you know as 90 minutes it, it outstayed it's welcome for me but as a 40 minute film I think it's such a great fun little you know, uh, sort of joyride. I mean, I, I like the found footage horror genre when it's done right. There's a couple of examples that I really enjoy watching, um, or, you know, initially watched, because to watch them again would to be, you know, all the scares you're expecting. Um, but I, I really enjoy the the sort of fairground attraction element of being frightened by them. You know, they mm. are boo moments that get me sometimes. When they're done badly, I hate them, but that's another... Yeah, that's another I, think, I think we can say that about any genre, can't they? When they're done badly, they're, uh, yeah, yeah. they've become... So, thinking about... I mean, you intimated this... You give us, like, a potted history there of yourself in the introduction. Um, but just thinking from a very personal point of view, what, what what do you remember being, like, a film or a person in your life or a, that represents a kind of tipping point of you going, I want to be a filmmaker? I do. I think it was... I mean... My parents always sort of, you know, got very early on that I just drank films up. I mean, I remember we sort of had bootleg copies of Blade Runner and The Hitcher and Mona Lisa from a a very inappropriately young age. But I was just absolutely obsessed with these films. I mean, I've still got the VHS tapes laying around somewhere for them just out of, you know, I'll stick them in a cabinet one day, sort of, you know, this was the beginning. But (laughs) but it was those sorts of films. Like Blade Runner, I remember, you know, uh, when my dad sort of first explained it to me, it's like, oh, it's about a cop who kills robots. And I was like, oh, you know great it's like you know policemen shooting down c3po or whatever and then i watched it and it completely 
you know, no idea what I was seeing, but I was absolutely obsessed with it and sort of, you know, ridiculously young. Same with stuff like The Hitcher or Mona Lisa. I mean, you know, they're dealing with sort of really complex stuff, but they were the sort of the films that really sort of captured my imagination, as well as Highlander, got to shout that out. <laughs> Iron Eagle, I won't go quite so far, but that was something I watched a lot as a kid that embarrassed about now. Um, but it was those sorts of films, you know, there's always those sort of core little areas. And I'm sort of a huge comic book fan as well, sort of how you'd tell these really, you know, really bold stories visually it was always th those elements were always there very early on and then you know that that was kind of what what set everything off I wanted to be a comic book author for a couple of years and I was, I was like nine or something I was like that's the that's the thing and then I remember seeing a, a documentary on the making of uh, Mad Max 2 and it suddenly I was like wow people actually make these things you know as a kid you always assume that it's just a bunch of great people that turn up and make it up as they go along you know no ideas of the processes involved and then once I'd learned you know once I sort of became aware of what the processes were, that was something that I became absolutely obsessed with on top of the stories that were being told. Like, how do you go about building this, you know, sort of infrastructure to, you know, to make Mad Max 2? You know, it's, it's fantastic. Well, no, I think, I, think, I think in some senses, if you look at, say, um, Nicholas Wan and Reffin's Drive, yeah. where it's a real car chase. Yeah, yeah. And you know, suddenly you actually, it, it's like it's alive, isn't it, compared to what you might, we might be used to seeing in modern cinema? I mean, it's, it is that thing. I mean, I, I, you know, it's got its detractors, but, you know, every so often you, you hear the murmurs of the Akira live-action film being sort of re, you know, uh, resurrected and, you know, uh, different directors attached and everything. I, I'd love to see a live-action Akira just because I can't imagine the approach that they'd take to do the stuff that you see in this animation that's absolutely phenomenal. And that's that's the thing for me. When you get, you know, it's either you've got real-world stuff that absolutely, you know, you're like, look at the stunt work in that. Like, one of my favourite you know, guilty pleasure movies, uh, Brian Bosworth film called Stone Cold. Okay. And there's a bit where they fly this helicopter, you know, about six feet off of a road over police cars and stuff. And you know that, that you know, that, that's an actual stunt. That's a, you know, physically real thing you're seeing. And I always get a little buzz out of watching that. Whereas you get something where it's, I don't know, you know, CG fest, you know, and everyone hates CG when it's used inappropriately, but it's, you, you've just got no sense of danger or sort of, you know, or, you know, and that's something that I really miss and stuff. But yeah, Drive's a great example because it's, you know, it's it's physically real. It's the, you know, the noise of the cars. You know, the car crash sequence is so sort of smartly underplayed that you really go, ah, oh, I haven't seen that before. And that's that's what I think we're missing a lot nowadays. And, and you intimated there in your opening as well that you, you, did, you went to university to study film, is that right? Yeah, yeah, film studies at um, Southampton Institute, which I think has been retitled since. But um, yeah, sort of... Uh, how, how do you how do you think that that part of your education, as it were, um, helped prepare you for where you are now? Um, kind of a tough one. It's I the, the course was kind of divided into two halves. It was sort of fifty percent uh, practical and fifty percent um, theory. The theory side I loved because it was just talking films, and you know it did kind of ground me a bit more. You know, it's always the question of why is someone doing what they're doing? Why are they telling it from this perspective? Why are you? pitting the camera there, da, 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 da. You know, you don't necessarily agree with all of it, but it gets the gears turning in terms of, um, you know, asking yourself questions. Why am I doing this? You know, what is the reason for this? The the practical side, I mean, I I, I worked for a couple of years. Uh, I worked freelance, uh, freelance. I worked in an agency for a year before going, so I could save up to buy a, uh, a Canon XL1, which I was in a film museum in Australia and is now actually in a museum as a museum artefact, which makes me feel incredibly old. Um, <laughs> but it was that thing where, you know, I bought a, a decent camera so I didn't have to rely on anything in terms of signing stuff out. And I could just go out, you know, at night with my mates drunk and sort of go make some 
you know, films that no one will ever see because they're pretty appalling. Um, you know, but it's all that sort of testing thing. I mean, the practical side didn't really help me. The theory side I loved. Met a lot of good people. Saw, a, you know, hell of a lot of good films. You know, my best mate met him there. Um, as a, as in terms of sort of education, I don't know how much it really helped me. I think making the films, you know, is is where you get it all from. And I was doing that anyway. But um, but yeah, the theory side was good. But I guess I guess it sounds a lot like 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 I guess any university education. You just got stuff out your system, and that included shooting something that maybe isn't that great. But then you've shot that stuff that isn't so great, you know. So exactly, you're sort of working all the bad elements out your out your sort of system, and and you know, and sort of growing as a person. I think that's always something that people overlook. That's you know, get a lot of questions from people who are sort of younger. Should I go to uni? And it's like, well, you, you're pretty well, you know, if they're pretty well rounded, no, I don't think it's worth it. If they, you know, you think they could do with a sort of little social kick up the arse and absolutely I think it's a you know a great opportunity to sort of find out more about yourself as well as whatever it is that you're, you're learning now you're 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 um we build you as a writer director yeah um and uh those two disciplines as much as they call each other because obviously you write a script and then a director takes that and it's a blueprint that then gets made into a film um but when you're doing the two how do you separate the two disciplines and in particular the sort of you know the challenge. I mean, I'm a writer, not a director, so I, I kind of I don't have to worry about how it, how you shoot the camera. I just have to worry about whether it's visual. Um, how do you separate the kind of being creative as a writer and developing scripts, and you know being being the director that may, may end up shooting what you're doing, what you're writing, as it were? Um, I mean, I, th- I think it's something you you really learn. Again, you know, the more you do it, the sort of more comfortable you get. I mean, for me, the script is never you know, final, it is, you know, my producer always hates me saying it, but the, the organic process, you know, you write one film, you shoot another film, you edit another film, you score another film. It's always, you know, you're always tinkering with things and removing things. And for me, the script is, it's either structurally, it's usually locked down, but in terms of dialogue, in terms of, uh, you know, slight little character motivations that you can tinker with, it's, it's fair game as far as I'm concerned. And I think a lot of that comes down from trusting the people you're, you're surrounding yourself with, especially in terms of sort of, you know, you actors, you want to make sure that they are comfortable, you know, and it basically, I always say at the beginning of any shoot, if anyone's got a better idea for something, do say so, you know, usually 99% of the time, everyone's happy with the script. It's, you know, locked down. As long as the core concept doesn't change, um, I'm happy to kind of shift scenes around. I'm happy to shift dialogue if it warrants it. And I think through directing sort of more and more, you realize that everything gets made better by those collaborations. You know, I never go into anything draconian and go, nope, my idea is absolutely, this is how it's going to be. I'm, I'm steering the ship. You know, if someone says, you know what, if we steered it around that rock, we'd be safer, you know, we'd be better off than absolutely, you know, that's the, the correct course of action to take. Whereas my, as a director, I can sort of switch off the script. And as long as I, I'm happy that the, what it, what it feels like, what the mood is, the tone, the sort of the texture of the piece is what it should be everything else is kind of uh fair game for tinkering to a point and also i I, i've done a couple of productions where they've been sort of heavily storyboarded heavily you know locked down to the tiniest little detail and the way that i i prefer to shoot is a little looser than that i i you know to say that i get bored easily is the wrong term but i've got a lot of energy on set that i kind of want to move over here and shoot that angle as soon as we've done this one you know and i like to really sort of explore the scene when we're shooting it and i think that eggs actors on the eggs on the crew you know it's it's you you start to find things that weren't necessarily there in the script you know and sometimes it's just 
playing with you know what what crops up you know there's you might get a lens flare pinging through a window because suddenly the clouds part and you go you know what let's shoot this from over here and do the whole movie from this angle yeah you know and it's it's great fun and same with the editing it's you know you're always finding new layers to the story when you're you're adding your sound mix or you know the score suddenly you go you know what we can take all the dialogue of this and play it off of two people's you know silent looks and just have a little current of underscore and that for me is the the delight because you're you're watching it unfold as you make it but you've always just got to make sure that core uh you know truth of what it is that you're trying to do as a film is is maintained you know the 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 heart of it, I guess, is the the word I'd use. And what 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 particularly is your um, your kind of writing process? If, if if obviously if you're not scared of it changing later on in this day, how do you approach it? It's sort of in, in its inception, as it were. Are you are you a kind of you know index carder? You outlining, you challenging log lines. Are you a burn the midnight old man? Get up in the morning. Yeah, it's definitely a night hawk in that regard. Just because okay. you know, your emails switch off and you can drink as much coffee you like and not have anyone sort of you know. Should you really be drinking that amount? Um, <laughs> for me, it's uh, it depends on project to project. I used to be a you know meticulous index carder because I used to play a lot around with um, you know structure and sort of you know mixing things up. But then you know we did several films that were non-linear, and I went, you know what? It's actually better to just write the scenes separately on separate pieces of paper and then shoot them and then mix it up in the edit, but not to worry too much about how they're going to interact. Um, with regards to kind of longer form stuff, like the feature script that we've been working on. Um, and that's called? Uh, Teardrop. That's okay. Teardrop, which uh, we're on the seventh draft of at the moment. I mean, that that was something that initially began as an index card, and every draft I did, it wasn't necessarily, it was never a case of, going back and tinkering with the draft I'd always write it out from scratch from the beginning again because wow. you kind you know it helps you unfold even if you you know the whole of the first act you know by heart you just hammer it out again because those little changes occur but as I've gone on the thing that I've sort of it, I, I sort of work a lot as a freelance director so time's quite a precious thing hmm. um, I, I'm always sort of making notes always you know bits and pieces in notebooks and you know sticky my, my stickies on my um, on my laptop is an absolute clusterfuck of just notes everywhere you know and always try and sort of once a month give them a, a structure that could be good for here and whatnot but in terms of sort of writing scripts I tend to like to write it right through it to understand it I always do what I call the draft zero which uh, you know I only let a couple you know a very sort of select core group of people read for feedback because I know that script's going to get completely shot out the window in pretty much every single way mm-hmm. but that kind of helps me get you know get find the characters voices find their motivations and it's for me, it's just fun writing it that way. And to, to switch off, is it any good, is the biggest part of that. I never think the draft zeroes, you know, it is a, it, it's beyond a blueprint. It's kind of a, you know, a stick sketch in the sand of what it might be. Um, but in terms of what sort of kicks off the scripts, it's, it's usually a piece of music. You know, I kind of have like a very vague idea for a plot and then I try and find a, a piece of music that kind of feels like what I'd like the film to feel like. And then I sort of develop from there. Um, the music never you know features in the film obviously but uh, i think that's sort of why a lot of the stuff that we've made has been named after songs um just because that was always kind of the core kickoff point was you know i really i've got a very loose idea for this character and it sort of feels like this piece of music and then i develop it from there and sort of uh see where it goes i'm almost a bit i've, I've recently started sort of listening I, I, it's something i've never done before but just listening to other soundtracks while i write mm. and it's it, it does help it's it, better than it, silence that's for certain it really does. I've um, all kind of. I've done, we've been working on a short film script um, for for a year or so now, and it's kind of an interesting one because it's sort of a a, a period piece uh, in terms of its setting. 
and I've been listening to a lot of Hacks and Cloak for it because the, the, as much as it's very sort of modern music, it's very, emo- very emotive, very kind of unnerving, and it really that sort of really worked. I mean, anything that's kind of soundscapey, I think. Uh, anything with the lyrics, I start to sort of phase out, or you sort of pick up on a lyric and go, oh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that can sort of get in there. So, absolutely, I think scores. Listening to a lot of Tangerine Dream at the moment, mm, let's put yeah. it that way, the, the, thief, the thief score in particular. So, you kind yeah. of, um, you know, you end up with that sort of 80s influence bleeding into the script, and, you know, but it's, you can't go wrong with any Tangerine Dream. Miracle Mile, massively underrated film, great score. I don't know, and I'll check that one out. It's absolutely amazing. It's uh, be warned though; it is one of those films I recommend to people, and they they sort of hand it back and go, "Really?" Um, but yeah, I have a soft spot for it. So, so if that if that's the sort of writing process, then, and you've you've given us some some clues there as to your approach to directing, you 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 seem to you va- you value the collaboration over the being the the auteur or the autocrat who's going to lead this film wherever it may end up. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, mean, I mean, it all depends on the part. I mean, there's certain things you, you, you know, you walk in and then you go, we're going to shoot it from here. And it's, it is that simple because it's, it's common sense, you know, the, the, yeah. the script dictates you do this and no one really sort of pushes back at all. But there's been sort of instances I've worked with sort of performers who, um, uh, you know, they've had, more, you know, so many ideas and like 99% of them are great, but they're not right if you know what I mean and it, you know that's the collaborative thing is sort of it's a two-way street they've got to trust that you're open to listen and you've got to also make sure that they know that you're open to their ideas of what they can bring to it I think um I mean I, you know I, I I self-shoot a lot often just because budgets or um schedules you know permit it you know it's, it's sometimes you can't get the people you want and I I we did a music video called Kilburn with Lou Stanley from London to Brighton yeah. and we had we had a uh effectively like a two-day shoot and a two-day edit process to get the whole thing complete and rather than kind of know that we, I'd be losing that time communicating to a crew it was like you know what we've got no money we've got no time we've got this you know phenomenal actress who got this great script let's just go out and do it really guerrilla style you know we didn't even apply for permits or anything we we're just out there with a you know a, a box of lenses a camera and this actress and we just did this really you know fantastic little short film in a really confined amount of time and that was great because that sort of attitude she she got the character so much i didn't really have to give her too much direction it was no you you know what this scene's about we're just going to roll and roll and roll until we've got it and then we'll sort of get through it into the edit so that's something um it, that's kind of an interesting one because I remember a producer sort of watched it and said, you know, it's so you. And I was like, as far as I was concerned, it was something that we just squeezed into this amount of time. But whatever it is that you bring to the table comes out naturally from experience. So, um, Yeah, I mean, I, I interviewed um, Alice Lowe regarding Sightseers and she talked a lot about Ben Wheatley in that respect. It's sort of when people push you and it, it seems to be we're setting up quickly, we're going, we've done this, we've got it, we've got it. It builds a confidence in the actors as well that, you Absolutely. know, you know what you're doing, as it were, for want of a better expression. Well, I think it's that thing as well, you know, too much waiting around, you know, obviously it always kills the mood and it kills the, the uh, you know, anyone's impetus. You know, if they're trying to sort of stay in character, for example, and, you you know, you've got a break for an hour to set up this, this setup, it does, you know, they've got, you know, some people, they can sort of hit it like that and they're straight back in there. I worked with... Um, Charlie Clapham was doing really well in Hollyoaks at the moment, but he was someone who just turn up and you go, you know, we want this, and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, and he'd just do it, and it was like, wow, you know, there's, you know, that that's someone who's just a, a natural. You got other people's methods; they really sort of got to sort of, you know, dig down deep to kind of get to the core of this and create this character building world. And no sort of, uh, you know, none of them are sort of, you know, the right or wrong sort of technique to use. But as a director, you've got to appreciate that some people can switch it on that quickly. Some people have to kind of maintain that level of intensity to kind of 
not break an emotional continuity and I think that's why I like to shoot quickly because I like to kind of keep the drama of the scene kind of playing out in real time as much as possible if if possible so you know set up times for me I, I think that's why we've done a lot of handheld recently we've done a lot of kind of naturalistic style um you know and it keeps them on their toes you know good we're going for another one you know you, you don't they don't have time to go was that okay you know was that not okay and you know uh, having said that if anyone ever wants to look at playback i'm never kind of no you know that's that's something i know some directors who absolutely will never let performers watch playback mm. i think it's crazy it's it's you know it, it can be difficult if you get someone who gets starts to get very technical well i think i should do this here or do that there or whatnot um you know you can run into problems with that but i think keeping keeping momentum up keeping you know the enthusiasm up as well you know if people are if people are doing it they're doing it they're not sitting around waiting to do it and that for me is i think an important energy to maintain now, now you, you said um you've what you say seven you up to your seventh draft with teardrop yeah um just 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 for for the listener can you give us a sort of brief synopsis as to what the story is for teardrop um i'm going to keep that a little close to my chest now. okay what type of film is it then sorry it's uh it's a thriller it's, okay uh a romantic thriller is the okay. best way that I'd explain it. It's a little bit of a throwback to kind of the old handmade days of films, um, as in handmade films, not, not handmade days. Um, <laughs> it kind of wears those influences. Well, no, no, it doesn't really wear them on its sleeve, I guess. It's a, a, a colleague of mine read a draft and he compared it to Drive, which I'm not unhappy with at all. It's nothing oh, like Drive, but he was like, the tone of it feels quite sort of art house action film, which I think okay. is what we're, what we're sort of pushing towards. We, you know, we want to do something that's, is is bold and exciting and you know it's it's it it does effectively turn into an action film but there's a very specific no pun intended there's a very specific drive towards the action it's not hopefully it's not something that people have really sort of encountered before it's it's flurries of action done in an in interesting way but at its core at its heart it's very much a romance through the whole thing the whole the main character arc is um is is driven by the heart so um from from your own experience today and thinking of uh, passing on a bit of a bit less a few lessons learned for those maybe first time directors and people early in their career what 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 lesson or lessons learned have you got from your experience today that you could pass on to people that um, that sort of stuff that you know that reoccur all the time in your work. You think you know, knowing that is going to is always helping me now. It's I, I mean it's sort of a, a number of factors. I mean it's that thing you know I don't think anyone ever really knows how any of it works. You know it's it it, it is a business. You've got to you've got to treat it as uh, to a degree as a as a business. You've got to sort of progress through. But I think in terms of like the biggest the you know in order. Make you know when you're starting out, make yourself available. I mean, that's when I when I fi was finishing up at uni six months before the end. I was sending out letters to companies, you know, hundred let. You know, this is sort of before. I mean, people used email, but people still, you know, there was value in actually sort of handwriting letters. Mm -hmm. Showing my age now, but um, it was that element of you know, you send out hundred letters, you hear back from ten, nine of them are a no, and then one of them's a maybe, and then you go to the maybe, that's a no. But it's everything you can sort of take and learn. You make yourself available. I worked for free for a production company for about six months. Uh, moonlighting on the side for a company called Naked News, which is a topless news channel, not anywhere near as nice a job as you'd imagine. It was quite a, a sordid, bizarre, surreal gig. But the you know I was running for this uh, production company, and then basically someone dropped the ball on a promo. Oh, apparently the runner says he can edit, give it to him. I did that. That picked up an award, and then I ended up getting a job with the company, um, and you know stayed there for a couple of years, learned everything I could. But it's that thing of making yourself available. It's um, you know I mean I still do. You know, if I believe in something, the music video we did with Lou Stanley for, for for this band, we we didn't, you know, we we didn't make a penny on it. It was a passion project because we believed in the song, we believed in the band, and we 
we liked the concept and saw this, you know, great, great moment, you know, great opportunity to make something. So I think it's to never be precious. I think it's to make yourself available for anything. If you're not doing anything, go do something for free because you don't know what you're going to get. I know a lot of people are very sort of hot on that, but, um, you know, it, it worked for me and, and also life work balance. I mean, I, uh, you've, you've got to have a life on the, on the side of it. I currently don't. So I'm kind of a bit of a hypocrite there, but, uh, you know, you've got to, make sure that you sort of you lead a bit of a life otherwise you've got nothing to sort of draw experience from you know in terms of your writing it's i know so many people who are writing scripts about sort of directors going mad or sort of you know within the <laughs> film industry and it's because that they don't have any life outside of work that they've got no other uh, they've got no outer influences and you know i did a wonderful job last year where i went to places I, that were never on my travel map like you know i was filming off the side of a mountain in nepal with a hangover I'll add but um it was you know something I was like oh, you know I'm seeing sides of the world that I've never experienced and you know if you can drive your work life to sort of get those experiences great you get paid to get paid to do these things but um yeah not not be precious make yourself available and just keep at it because you will you know you can make 10 bad films and suddenly they start getting better but then you could make another bad film as the 15th film and you know, just be prepared for every eventuality. I think, and um, but yeah, availability. I think that's the main one. Just sounds 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 a lot like make your own look as well, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, very much, very much. It's it's you know you you've got to do it to do it. Effectively. It ain't going to come knocking on your door, from what you're saying exactly. there. Exactly. I, I know a lot of people who are incredibly talented and uh, you know phenomenally talented, but they've 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 got a bad attitude in terms of sort of ego. You know, they're kind of you know oh, I won't do that because the money's not good enough, and it's like well then you're not going to do anything this year. It's you know. It maddens me because you know they've they've got the they've got the chops to do it, but they they won't do it because they they don't like the money involved, for example, or you know, and be broke, be prepared to be broke. I think that's the other thing. Or well, not broke, but you know, pumping your own money into productions and and whatnot. It's uh, you know, and supportive. I think there's you know the great thing with Twitter now is you meet people. Directors never meet other directors, or very rarely do. And when they do, especially if there's a uh, you know certain situations, it's very much like two dogs sniffing each other out to sort of work out what they can, what they like that the other has, and you know all this. Whereas you get Twitter, it's it's you know it's great. You, you suddenly talking to directors that you you'd never have sort of you know met otherwise, and you you know you become mates, and you do you trade you know you trade concepts and techniques, and you know I think not to be uh, you know don't let ego get in the way. Well, to be honest with you, I think I think what you're touching on there is I think I think that there's there's a whole world of networking that can be done in social media that just wasn't possible mm, in, mm. in the real and isn't possible in the real world and because it, it's networking that anybody the people either giving the question or the feedback and the people receiving it can pick it up and put it down when they want. You're not doorstepping anybody. Absolutely, you know, you're not cold calling them or annoying them or whatnot. You kind of, you know, people are sort of aware. I mean, you know, someone's like, oh, that's that's that Joker's back, and I was like. You know that's how people are referring to now. You know it's that's that's interesting. You know, uh, and it's not it's lovely. You suddenly, you know, you bump into somebody. And you go, oh, we've 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 talked before, and it's you know you you instantly sort of the ice is broken, which is nice. But um, mm. but yeah, just from a social standpoint, it's it's nice to talk to other people doing the same thing as you. You know, you're always going to run into those people who sort of, you know, maybe got a bit of a you know holy than now sort of approach. But you know, for every one of those, there's ten great people who you you know you sit down have a beer with and you know talk sharp. Well, look. Finally, sir, before I let you carry on with getting your final prep for your two months or so away, um, what what British movie do you think is uh, is underrated and deserves a bit more kudos? Um, okay, I've got. Uh, I'm going to go for and I. Okay, it's not British. It's, it's a Sydney Lumet film, uh, really? but Sean Connery was huge on sort of getting it getting it made uh, with MGM's money. So I don't know if technically it counts as a British film, but it's. 
set in um set just outside of newcastle it's a Sidney Lamet film called the offense um which is sean connery kind of um uh 90 sort of late 70s sort of era connery as basically a sort of policeman in, uh, interrogating a suspected paedophile and it's kind of you know it's very much like a play in it's um its approach it's very much sort of one location uh, i mean there are other locations but the main meat of it it's just this incredibly tense like un, unremittedly dark drama that uh, you'd never expect sean connery to be in and i remember a director I was working for years ago sort of told me about it and I thought he was pulling my leg because he explained the whole plot from beginning to end and I was like, no, you know, that Sean Connery was never in a film like that without, you know, I'm not sort of going to give away what happens at the end, but it's pretty shocking. Um, and it's just absolutely, you know, if you can track that down, it's an absolute gem and it's, you know, if you like Sidney, I mean, Sidney Lumet's an absolute, you know, uh, you know, deity in my eyes. It's absolutely amazing. But um, yeah, check it out. It's absolutely amazing. But if, if, if that, that would be my pick. I think out of it. No, no, it's about, no, I remember catching that one late at night one time and being absolutely shocked that yeah, it was a Sean Connery movie for starters. It's the weirdest thing. It was, um, but it, it, I think, it, I remember reading up on it, it killed his creative power with, I think it was MGM, and that he, he was like, I'll do, I'll come back as Bond, but you've got to bankroll three films of my choosing. And I think this was the first. <laughs> um, and then basically they went, you know, what, what the hell do we do with this? You know, it's, it, who's going to watch, you know, Bond? murdering a paedophile you know or does it you know but you know it's it's sort of it's shocking and it's got that great 70s new town british sort of uh darkness to it it's, you know it's a real fascinating sort of period piece i think and um yeah i've got i've got the poster in my office it's a it's a lovely you know odd strange thing that you know no one's ever really sort of heard of and first thing i think of whenever i think of sean connery now which uh you know him him with a pint in sort of a you know a crappy hat with a, a, a tash i was gonna say yeah the tash and the like a sheepskin jacket isn't it from the right yeah. Is that... yeah yeah that's what and the, the great speech he has with his wife when he's just like you know what happened to you you should be good looking you know it's the the script is pin sharp but um yeah i don't know if it counts as a british film but it's in britain i'll so. count that as a british film okay cool i'm glad glad uh alternatively not... honorable mention the last minute by stephen norrington uh which is a film that no one's ever heard of or seen, and no, again, it's one of those films I lend to people, and they go, "Really?" But uh, I believe you can you can find the whole thing on YouTube if you scour it out. So, um, what was that called again? Sorry, the last minute by Stephen Norrington, who did the Blade, who was um, many years ago very kind enough to respond to an email I sent him, and I was very young, asking for advice as a filmmaker. Yeah, effectively sent me advice back saying, you know, don't be a dick, basically, um, <laughs> you know, and, and be prepared to be crushingly disappointed. Um, and it was he made this sort of very uh, very slick, you know. It, you know, it looks like Blade. It's got the production value, but it's a very sort of um, unusual film about the price of fame, uh, which it completely falls off in the last half. But the first hour of it, it's got such an energy and gloss that I can't not go silly whenever I see it. And um, yeah, great soundtrack. Very, very much a product of of its time. But um, yeah, real honourable mention to that. It's one of my one of my favourite. Okay, little... well, they sound like two good recommendations for British cinema. Very nice, very nice. Uh, well, look. Thank you very much for your time, Mark. Pleasure, pleasure. And uh, hopefully, you know, if things develop on uh, on the teardrop front, we can uh, we can, or, or any other front for that matter, you know, we can we'll we'll happily have you back on. Yeah, absolutely, be a pleasure. All right, Mark. We'll take care. You too. You too. Take care. Bye. It's the Netflix.com podcast.
These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.